Okay, so today we start uh, the book of Philippians. So it's a fresh new start, fresh new series. We've got the handouts over there by the, uh, on the little table by the donation box. And uh, so we're going to introduce the book of Philippians and probably get through a few verses of the first chapter today. And uh, uh, so you might want to hold the page of the book of Philippians, but you're also going to want to uh, open up to Acts 16 because that gives us the background of how Paul built his relationship with the Philippians and planted the church there. What's that? Oh, and we have the Lord's Supper today. Thank you, John, for telling me. All right, good deal. We have the Lord's Supper today, so we get to be united in Christ. And uh, let's go to the Lord with the word of prayer that, uh, once again, that he anoints the preaching of the word. Father, in Jesus' precious name, uh, other than the Lord Jesus, God the Son become a man, all other humans are fallible. All other humans in some way, shape, or form, to one degree or another, lead people astray. But you've called on fallible people to proclaim your infallible, perfect word. And the people that are here today, Lord, they came to hear your word. They came to hear your wisdom. Not the faulty wisdom of man, not the lies of man. And so I pray, Lord, that you would cancel the man, that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word. And may your Holy Spirit empower us to apply these truths to our lives so that through the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory, we would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Now the author of the letter to the Philippians uh, is the Apostle Paul, and he's with Timothy. So, you know, God may have used Timothy to, and, and inspired both of them, guided both of them, uh, or Timothy was just there and, and uh, working with Paul. And, uh, but whatever the case, the Apostle Paul, possibly with Timothy, that's the author. Now, he wrote it while he's imprisoned in Rome. So you can think about it, you know, what would I write to other Christians about if I were in prison? Well, Paul decided to write to this particular group of Christians all about rejoicing in the Lord. How many of us, if we were in prison, would be thinking about having the joy of the Lord? And Paul, by the way, you know, he's been in prison for two years now in Rome. But he got imprisoned overnight in a Philippian jail. And what was he doing at midnight? He was singing praise songs to God with Silas. So if you're in prison for one night for preaching the gospel, you allow God to fill you with joy. You choose the joy of the Lord in the midst of your sufferings. Because sometimes, you know, you might be there one night, and then an earthquake interrupts that. But then you might be there two years later on. This idea that the, the, the government, the powerful people of this world, this idea that they love Christians, uh, no. We've got to talk about speaking truth to power. We've got to speak God's truth to people with the wisdom of man. 
And Paul, he decides he's going to preach on joy and peace to the Philippians. That's the, he mentions the word joy or rejoice more times in this epistle than probably, I would guess, maybe even all the other epistles combined. His other 12 epistles, I'm not sure, I haven't checked it out, definitely mentions joy and rejoice more than any of his other writings. So he wrote it 60 or 61 AD while in prison in Rome. So what I want us to do is to go back to six, uh, Acts chapter 16. Now, I want to give you the background so that you understand the relationship that Paul has with these people, the, the saints in Philippi, the set-apart ones, the Christians in Philippi. He's the one who planted the church. He was the first to go out there and preach the gospel over there. Okay? Um, but let's say if, if I or you decided, you know what? Let me look in a uh, phone book. Phone books are things that old people used to use. I don't want to. Uh, let's say you go online and you search and you find that there's a, a church in uh, uh, North New Jersey, a Baptist church, and you decide, I'm going to write a letter to this, those in this Baptist church, you know, they're going to pick up the letter and they're going to look and they say, who is this guy? We don't even know this guy. And he's writing a letter like we're old friends and stuff like that. So you got to understand, before Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he's built a relationship with them. Okay? Now, Romans, he hadn't been to Rome. Book of Romans, he had to tell them, hey, I'd like to visit you. I don't want to build on another man's foundation. I like to preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. So on my way to Spain to try to preach the gospel in Spain, I just I decided to try to stop by and visit you. Well, he ends up getting in Rome in, in chains when he's in prison. But he tells them, I'm going to tell you the gospel. The way I share the gospel, that's what I'm going to share with you. So he lets them know that he hasn't established that relationship with them yet. He knew some people from the Church of Rome, but he didn't know them. With the Philippians, these guys were very dear to Paul's heart. And we're going to see why that is the case. Now, in Acts chapter 15, what, what happened before Acts 15 was Paul's first missionary journey. In the 40s AD, him and Barnabas <clears throat> go around, and uh, mainly in the, in the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they're planting churches and, and uh, leading people to Christ. That's his first missionary journey. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there, were word, there was word coming to him that James and the apostles in Jerusalem <clears throat> were now teaching that Gentiles could not get saved unless they first got circumcised and became Jews. Then they could trust in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, for salvation and get saved. Now, Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's like, no, no. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Okay? And so I'm not going to stand for this. So a meeting gets set up in Jerusalem for the leaders of the early church. Now, I believe before Paul went there, he had his own preemptive strike, the book of Galatians, where he sent to the region in Galatia, saying, hey, even if we, meaning an apostle, 
where an angel from heaven preaches a gospel other than that which we've already preached, let him be accursed. Okay? So even above apostolic authority is the gospel. If the apostles are preaching a false gospel, Paul says reject it. Okay? Now Paul goes to the Jerusalem Council and guess what? They were misrepresenting what what James was teaching. And James and Peter agreed with Paul and Barnabas and extended the right hand of fellowship. And they said, you know what? Not only can Gentiles come to Christ and get saved without getting circumcised, without placing themselves under the Old Testament Mosaic law, not only that, we're actually willing to fellowship with them if they'll give up like some of these bad habits that these Gentiles have. And they listed some really bad habits that no Christian should partake of. Okay? And uh, uh, so that goes over well. So now Paul's going to go on his second missionary journey. Him and Barnabas have a big disagreement, though, because Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, who later on became the author of the Gospel of Mark and a colleague of Peter and later on of Paul again, but John Mark had, had left. He split. I guess it got too rough for him on the first missionary journey, and he left. So Barnabas, and his name means son of encouragement, he says, let's give the young guy a second chance. And Paul's like, no way. No way. You know, Marine Corps leadership, big debate. What comes first, the accomplishment of the mission or the welfare of the troops? And I agree with Paul, it's the accomplishment of the mission, but I also agree with Barnabas that if you don't care about the welfare of the troops, if you're not patient with them, if you don't encourage them, you'll never accomplish the mission. And, uh, but they, they butt heads, so Barnabas took John Mark on the second missionary journey, Paul took Silas, and he went on it. I think Paul felt a little guilty, because starting in Acts chapter 16, he meets a young guy named Timothy. And I wouldn't be surprised if Timothy reminded him of a young guy named John Mark. And so Paul says, we've got to bring this guy on our missionary journey. However, we've got a problem. He's half Jewish, half Gentile, and he's not circumcised. So even though if he was all Gentile like Titus, Paul would say, no, he doesn't get circumcised. Uh, don't, don't blur the gospel message. Uh, but because everywhere that Paul went, when you read the book of Acts, he would first preach the gospel in the synagogues. Even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he would preach first in the synagogues. And then when they would give him a hint like they don't like what he's saying, like, for instance, throwing rocks at him or something like that, beating him with rods. He said, okay, I understand. Then he'd shake the dust off his sandals, and then he'd go to the marketplace and preach to the Gentiles. Rarely did he last more than two or three weeks in the, in the synagogues, but he'd make a few converts there and get a church started and then go out uh, to the Gentiles. And uh, so Paul knew if I bring Timothy and they find out he's half Jewish and he's not circumcised, no Jews are going to listen to us. So because he's Jewish, he's got to get circumcised. And I'm telling you, right off the start, Timothy was, you know, committed to serving for the Lord, you know, serving the Lord. Because you're asking a grown guy, not, a, not an eight-day-old baby, to get circumcised. It's like, that's, that's commitment right there. I mean, you talk about suffering for Christ. He suffered before he even started preaching. And uh, uh, so... In Acts 16, the first four verses, Paul starting his, his uh, uh, 
second missionary journey, then in verses 6 to 10, they, 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 they wanted to go uh, to you know, Asia Minor, is part of what we call, you know, Asia today, like modern Turkey and all, but it's, it's part of Asia, okay? And, uh, and they wanted to go and preach in Asia, but the Holy Spirit said no. And then Paul has a vision of a man crying out to God in Macedonia, which is just the region just north of, of Greece, okay? And uh, modern-day Greece today, it's all part of the same thing, I believe. And uh, But Paul said, hey... We need to go there. And so they went there starting in verse 11 because of that vision of Acts chapter 16. Uh, by the way, this changed the course of history. Because, because of this vision and the Holy Spirit's prompting of Paul and his colleagues, it meant that Europe was going to be immersed in the gospel by the preaching of Paul rather than Asia. And so all I could say is there probably weren't people, uh, the amount of people who were open to the gospel, who were seeking God in Asia, uh, but there were uh, in, uh, in Europe uh, at that time. Many of us would not be here today and would not know Jesus if this decision had not been made. Now, don't get me wrong, Asia was not ignored. Doubting Thomas, everybody likes to slam Doubting Thomas, don't slam him. He's a tougher guy than you or me, Okay. He ended up, church tradition tells us, he preached in India to Brahmin priests, okay, and, um, and was eventually uh, killed, uh, uh, speared to death um, out there for preaching the gospel. But Paul's ministry was so big and so powerful that now the move, movement is west, and, uh, and they're going to go uh, to Macedonia. So through a vision... Um, God called Paul and his colleagues to preach the gospel in the region of Macedonia, just to the north of ancient Greece. So they left Asia for Europe and changed the course of history. And this is Paul's second missionary journey that occurred from like 49 AD to 52 AD. Okay, so let's pick it up at verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. Now that we is a very important we. There are some we's in the Bible that are very, very important. You know, sometimes Paul used what I call the authoritative we, where he's talking about him and the apostles. Even if we preach a gospel other than that which you've already heard, let him be accursed. Um, uh, but here, we is very strange. It's the first time it shows up in the book of Acts. Um, you will see, when you study the book of Acts closely, underline the we's and underline the they's. Because when you see a we and not a they, the author is telling you, I was with Paul. And so this Luke is that for the first time in Paul's missionary journeys that we know of, Luke joins uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas here in verse 11. And from there, from Neapolis to Philippi. So there, Paul goes to Philippi for the first time after becoming a Christian, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. So it's a very important city. And we were staying in that city for some days. 
And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside. Why would you go to the riverside on a Sabbath day? Okay, we need a little background info here. But on, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. So there's prayer going on at the riverside on a regular basis on the Sabbath. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple, purple dye, from the city of Thyatira, that's where she had originally come from, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, so she came to Christ and got baptized, she begged us, us, so Luke is with them, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Okay, Paul's on his second missionary journey, and it turns out there were not even enough Jews in Philippi to start a synagogue. You had to have at least ten heads of ten households before they would build a building. By the way, do you think America's prosperous today? If you get ten households that want to start a church... You don't have the money. Unless one of them is Bill Gates, okay? You don't have the money to build a church, okay? So we got to start rethinking about how prosperous we are and start trusting in the Lord more because things are getting bad. They're getting worse than we realize. It used to be churches would be built all over the place. You can see them in Kitsap County. We got dozens, if not hundreds, of church buildings but most of them aren't even occupied anymore. You're building a nice new building, and you're convinced, wow, a new church? Probably not. I, w- I would guess it's probably a, a medical clinic. And, and by the way, I think there's a connection. Because during the awakenings, the revivals in America, when churches were being built, bars were closing. When bars were opening up, churches weren't being built. Okay, and uh, but whatever the case, uh, uh, there's no synagogue there. So what did the Jews do? Whenever they were in some region of the world and they had no synagogue, they would go to a riverside on the Sabbath day and pray and and read Old Testament scripture if they had access to it. And um, let me tell you, you can't. It, it's almost impossible to retain a strong faith without fellowship. And the Jews understood this. When, they were, when the Babylonians conquered them and destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews and took them captive to Babylon, that's when they started building synagogues, places of worship to read the scriptures all over. And so it's kind of the scriptures plus fellowship and prayer um, that helps us to maintain um, uh, our, our faith through the power of God. And so Paul, they're the first people that Paul leads to Christ. And so Paul plants a church in Philippi. Since there wasn't enough Jews to build a synagogue, he probably planted a Gentile church. And it sure seems that way because he talks about the false circumcision, those who try to get Gentiles circumcised for religious reasons in the book of Philippians. And so he plants a Gentile church in Philippi, among the first members were, were Lydia, and then we're going to see the Philippian jailer, 
and possibly even the demon-possessed girl. Maybe she joined the church after Paul cast the demon out of her. Paul mentions Clement, who became Clement of Rome, who became the bishop of Rome about 95 AD, like about 30 years after this, 35 years after this. And, uh, and uh, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies that were kind of always, always arguing with each other, Paul's going to mention those three. And so apparently they were led to Christ when Philippians 4, verse 3 talks about that. And so let's take a look at this uh, history, starting at verse 11, Acts, uh, oh no, sorry, verse 16. So now Paul's starting this little church in Lydia's house, okay? Verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. She was demon-possessed, who brought, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So she would tell people's fortunes and through uh, the power of a demon. And But she, verse 17, the girl followed Paul and us. So they're, they're, they're trying to go out and preach the gospel. And she followed him, and she was saying this, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, probably the first time she said that, Paul probably thought, well, okay, lady knows her theology. And the second and third time, he's like, okay, lady, the people got the point. You know, after the 50th or 60th time, it's like, this lady is just distracting us. What is going on here? And so we have to be very, very careful. Sometimes the demonic realm says something that might even sound like they're pro proclaiming the truth, but you've got to be very, very careful. And Paul, eventually, God gave him the discernment to realize that uh, this, this girl is being empowered by the other side. So she goes around saying this, and this she did for many days. Paul, but Paul, greatly annoyed. I don't want to be around Paul when he's greatly annoyed, by the way. And I go to heaven, he won't, he's not annoyed anymore, okay? And... Um, that's the kind of that's the stuff that uh, Jesus is changing in us. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said in the uh, said to the spirit, the demon that was uh, possessing her, "I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her." And he came out that very hour. See, there's no secret formula to casting out demons. You just have to go in the authority of the Lord Jesus. And sometimes we say, I'm going to the authority of the Lord Jesus, but we're really trusting in ourselves. So a good time of prayer and fasting is uh, advisable. Um, but we cast demons out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in, in his power. We have that authority. Uh, don't slow down the process or complicate it. Or bring harm to yourself by invoking others. Just bring in the Lord Jesus. But don't be like the sons of Sceva. They didn't know Jesus, so they tried to cast out demons in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preached. Demons were like, I know who Jesus is. And I know who Paul is. But who are you? Man, I don't want a demon telling me that. I want to go, I want to go in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Uh, by the way, something, just something to think about. Alien abduction cases, 95% of them can be explained naturalistically. 
But in the alien abduction cases, the small percentage that cannot be explained away, the number one way uh, to get some quote-unquote alien entity to stop harassing you is by invoking the name of Jesus. Now you tell me where these, where these entities are coming from. Okay? And uh, uh, I'm telling you, demons can just show up or they can come riding a saucer, saucer in the sky. Um, we got to test the spirits. Paul tested the spirits and he cast the demon out of her and he, the demon, came out of her that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. You know, a lot of times people will turn on Christians because you might be destroying their livelihood. Even in, in Ephesus later on, guys were building um, uh, little uh, statues to be worshipped of the false goddess Diana. Paul was putting them out of business. So they beat him up. And, uh, but here, these guys came along. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Well, there's not a whole lot of Jews there. So it's not like there's going to be an outcry from the uh, less than ten Jewish households uh, by just characterizing them as Jews. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This guy was very conscientious about his work. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Two points I want to make. If it's at midnight in a cool, damp prison, and even my legs are, are uh, tied together, last thing on earth I'm thinking about is turning to the guy next to me and say, hey, let's have a praise and worship service. Okay? I'm telling you, when Paul told the Philippians, you need to rejoice in the Lord... Always, again I say rejoice, they knew that Paul practiced what he preached, okay? Now, when, when we, sometimes when I, you know, I, you know somebody's suffering, a, a loved one died, or, or they got, uh, they've got a sickness and stuff, I, I want to tell them, okay, you need to choose to rejoice in the Lord. At the same time, it doesn't have a whole lot of, power if people see me always grumpy and I'm not even suffering. Okay? I never tell a person I know what you're going through if I never went through what they're going through. Okay? But we all need, it's a command in the scriptures. We need, the, God doesn't command us to have feelings. So it's not talking about happiness. Happiness is a feeling. Things go our way, we get happy. Things go bad, we get sad. Paul, God's word, when it commands us to love one another, when it commands us to have joy, 
uh, that means God's commanding us to make the, joy, the, the choice. And so, oh, you're in a Philippian jail, it's damp, your feet are fastened, what are you going to do? And it's like, well, I, I don't have any scriptures with me. Let's uh, sing praise and worship, Silas. And, and Silas was right there with them. That's my first point. Even in the midst of suffering, you've got to choose joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy that comes from God. Things are going crazy in America. Christians are constantly viewed as the bad guys. Okay? Um, but Jesus is still sitting on the throne. If we can't rejoice, it's because we're too focused on planet Earth and not focused enough on the throne room of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're not focused enough on Jesus. Second point I want to make in that verse, what were the other prisoners doing? They were listening to them. You, you know what? If Paul and Silas decided this is unjust, we're innocent men, they threw us in prison, let's complain and let's curse. You know what the prisoners would have done? They would have listened to them. So if you're Mr. or Mrs. Grumpy Christian tomorrow, the world's listening to you. But if in the midst of your suffering you have the joy of the Lord and you're praising Jesus, the unsaved are listening to you. Okay? We think, oh, I only preach the gospel when I intentionally want to preach the gospel. No, you're preaching the gospel. Uh, when you wake up in the morning, it's, it's like a 24-7 thing. And we're not doing too good of a job. If I wake up grumpy, um, I'm not preaching Jesus to my wife if I wake up grumpy. Okay? i got to choose to have the joy um, of the Lord. Okay, verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. I would have thought, wow, an earthquake. God's setting Paul and Silas free. That's why he sent the earthquake. No, we're going to find out. That had nothing to do. The earthquake had nothing to do with, with setting Paul and Silas free. Uh, and the keeper of the prison, awake, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, why would he do that? It's because in Roman law... If you've imprisoned somebody by the authority of Rome, if they escape and you die trying to stop them from escaping, you're a hero. But if they escape and you don't die and you don't kill the guys trying to escape, uh, not only do they execute you, but Roman law, they execute your family as well. And so this guy was saying, i got to kill myself, so I'll go down as a history... And that will save my family. They'll probably even get a pension out of it. So Paul knew immediately this guy loves his family. A non-believer, but Paul knew this guy loves his family. So he's about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Um, I would have thought, you know, when God intervenes and sends an earthquake... I would have thought, okay, well, he wants to set us free. So we're out of here. But Paul had the discernment. He, don't forget, he was in the spirit. He was singing praise songs. 
He could see God's will. God's will was not to set the prisoners free. God's will was to save a Philippian jailer and his family. To what extent will God go to save us? It was an earthquake for the Philippian jailer. I didn't get no earthquake, but God did a lot of shaking in my life. Shook me up all over the place. You know, had me get God had to get me out of Jersey and got me to join the United States Marine Corps on the buddy system with a friend who talked me into joining the Marine Corps with him, and then he didn't show up to take the oath. Okay? God God shook up my world. If you don't know Jesus and you're out there, God's willing to shake up your world. You still got you can still choose to say no. A lot of people, their world has been so so shaken up throughout the decades, and they're still saying no to Jesus. It's like, wake up and smell the coffee. You've got to have a Jesus moment here. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's a Savior, whether you acknowledge that or not. So you might as well join his team and trust in him for salvation. But Paul said, don't do yourself harm. We're all here. Now, when Paul said we're all here, it wasn't just him and Silas. So you got these other prisoners, convicts, and they could hear Paul. They had been beaten with rods. They were in prison. They heard Paul and Silas singing praises to their God. I'm sure the, apparently these guys said, man, I need that. Whatever they got, Jesus, I need. Because Paul, and it's the same way with the shipwreck later on in the book of Acts. Paul says, no, nobody's going overboard at this point. And, um, um, and the people listen. Right, do we have that kind of impact with non-believers? When things get down, they turn to us for leadership. They follow our guidance. They say, well, I don't know what it is with this guy and his God, but that's the kind of leader I want to follow. Well, that's the way Paul and Silas were. And uh, we're all here. None were leaving. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay. Can you imagine if in the toughest times of your life, when you're either literally or metaphorically beaten or imprisoned, and people just see the way we act during that time. And then they walk up to us and say, wow, what must I do to be saved? I don't know about you. I don't get a whole lot of opportunities like that. Okay? But people are listening. The prisoners were listening. The jailer was listening. And people are watching. You might think, well, I, I got reason to be grumpy. I got reason to be a, a real complainer today, okay? No, you don't. You represent Jesus. If you trusted in Jesus for salvation, you know, like that, it's kind of a corny saying, but it's true. You might be the only Jesus some people will ever see. And uh, when the chips are down, if you're praising Jesus with your buddy, and maybe somebody's going to walk up to you and just say, what must I do to be saved? So he knew. These guys are the real deal. They're worshiping the true God. In the Roman Empire, 
you, you had thousands upon thousands of false gods. This guy's watching Paul and Silas. He said, man, they're not even running away because of me and my family. They were singing praise songs to their God. I can't do that. And so he asked, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, so Paul and Barnabas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will, you will be saved. And then he said, you and your household. So even if your household, this is for your household too. If they believe, they'll be saved too. They knew this guy loved his household. This guy loved his family. He's willing to die for them. Okay? Um, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Okay? And um, verse 35, And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates... Government officials have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Okay? You're messing with Paul here. You're not going to be done with this that easy. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. In other words, we're Roman citizens, and there was no trial. It's against Roman law to beat Roman citizens without a trial. Okay? And have thrown us into prison. And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, that they were Roman citizens. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. He's like, man, we're in enough trouble. We don't want to be in any more trouble. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Okay, so, uh, so Paul plants the church, the Philippian church, there um, and cast out uh, a demon from a demon-possessed fortune-telling girl, gets imprisoned, uh, leads the Philippian jailer, to Christ. Now, after planting the church in Philippi, Paul then went on to plant churches in Thessalonica. That's the first and second Thessalonians he wrote to that church. Berea, those were the guys who tested even what Paul taught them uh, with the scriptures to see if those things were so. And then, uh, and then Paul preached in Athens at Mars Hill to Greek philosophers, Acts 17. And then he planted the church in Corinth, he spent two years with the Corinthians, okay, and, and uh, preached the gospel there. Uh, after that, he returned to his home church in Antioch of Syria, okay? So that concludes his second missionary journey. Now, Paul's third missionary journey, which was from 53 to 57 AD, so he took about a year off. During his third missionary journey, Paul visited Philippi. So he loved these people. He's like, whenever I'm in the area, I'm going to come by and pay these people a visit. 
Okay, and that's mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. Now, Paul eventually, after his third missionary journey, uh, traveled to Jerusalem where he was arrested. Then he got sent to Caesarea Maritime, Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and he was there in prison, and eventually he was sent to Rome uh, for Caesar, the Roman emperor, to hear his case. So his first Roman imprisonment was from 59 A.D. to 61 A.D. And from that, while he was in prison during that time, he wrote the le his letter to the Philippians, his letter to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and Philemon. So those are his four prison epistles. Now later on, 2 Timothy, his second Roman imprisonment, where he's executed, um, before he's executed, he writes 2 Timothy. But in his letter to the Philippians, he mentions the words joy or rejoice more times in this letter than in any of his other letters. Uh, Paul considered the Philippians his faithful brothers and sisters in Christ because they supported his ministry with their prayers and with finances. Okay, you have to understand. Okay, re remember, let me make this point this way. We support missionaries, you know, Den Denny Smith's, uh, the, the, the late, great Denny Smith, godly brother, went to be with the Lord. Um, his daughter, one of my former students and son-in-law, are missionaries in northern Africa to a, a country where it's 99% Muslim, okay? Well, because of COVID, they got stuck back in the States, and for months, if not a year, they were not allowed to go back. And so what he had to do, it was like being imprisoned, he had to communicate via the internet with some of the locals that he had led to the Lord in this North African country, and, um, and he was so overjoyed when we continued to support our North African missionaries, even though they couldn't go to North Africa for about a year through COVID. You know how many ministries were shut down how many churches were shut down when the state was doing all the shutdowns and this type of thing and stuff? And uh, I believe me, you know, this March is going to be 34 years since this church was founded. Okay? And I love our people going into COVID. I love our people even more now because our people stayed faithful. Stayed faithful. Even when we had to do streaming online stuff. Even when we had to secretly meet in the homes. Okay? And not only support with the prayers and with emails. God bless you, Pastor Phil. We, um, we, we have a lady in this church that can't come to the church because she has to take care of her mom 24-7. She still writes letters, updating how they're doing, and still sends support. Okay? That's the way the Philippians were. Paul... Even if you're in prison and your ministry is limited to the Roman guards, um, we'll help pay for your needs, support you, and the day's going to come, maybe God's going to put you back out there. And so, Paul, what is he doing with his time? You've got to eat food, and I, by the way, Roman prisons aren't going to provide you with that much food, if any food at all, so you better have friends. Um, but he ends up writing these four letters 
that we've been reading uh, for almost 2,000 years now. And, uh, and so the Philippians were Paul's faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. They supported his ministry with their prayers and finances. Paul was convinced the, these guys were genuine. These were the real deal. That's why you don't hear him talking a whole lot about joy and peace to the Corinthians. Those guys were all over the place. Divisions, sinful, sinfulness, heresies, okay? But uh, as far as the Philippians, these were some of his favorite converts. Now look at, uh, uh, turn to the book of Philippians, and now we'll start Philippians. So now you know, the Paul, let me tell you, usually, not always, every once in a while, the Spirit of God will tell me to say something to a stranger. And it's really interesting the responses I get from those strangers too. Um, but normally, you have to earn the right to be heard. Okay? We, we gotta, we're commanded to speak the truth in love, but sometimes you've got to just show people you love them. The first four or five times you bump into them, and unless they just come right out and say, hey, what must they do to be saved? Sometimes you just got to show them, hey, I genuinely care about you as a human being. And the reason why I genuinely care about you as a human being? Because my God cares about you. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. And, uh, and so now we come to Philippians. Paul has obviously planted the church there, spent a lot of time with them, visited them. In his next missionary journey after that, and uh, they know Paul, they know Timothy, and so Paul starts the epistle, the letter of Paul, the, the apostle to the Philippians. He starts off by him and Timothy sending greetings. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Okay, so first, Paul and Timothy, Paul identifies him and Timothy as bondservants of Christ. The word for bondservant in the Greek is, is uh, douloi. It literally means slaves. Okay? And um, so they're saying, look, we're slaves of Jesus. We don't live for ourselves anymore. Now we live for Jesus. Okay? And, uh, and they're writing to the saints in Philippi. Well, the word for saints is hagioi, okay? That means the set-apart ones. And that's one of the first things I realized once I got saved was that Paul was calling live people saints. He wasn't waiting a couple hundred years to canonize them as saints. He was calling them saints right then and there. And so what that means is believers are saints, we have been set apart. All saint means is set apart. We're set apart from the evil world and its sinfulness and set apart to God and for his holy purposes. And holy is hagios, same word. Okay? And, um, and so, you know, you might not feel like, you might feel like, you know, I'm just a regular guy. No, not anymore. God takes regular guys and regular gals and makes them saints. It sets them apart for God's holy purposes. Okay? And, um, and uh, 
So he writes to the saints, the set-apart ones, the, the believers in Philippi, and he writes to bishops and deacons. Uh, the word for bishops just means overseers. Okay, that's what it literally means, an overseer. So that's kind of like the, the head pastor, okay? Um, uh, and as time went on in the history of the church, sometimes you had overseers who would oversee three or four different churches, and, uh, and then have elders working under them who would also lead the people. But the lead elders were, were the bishops, the overseers. The deacons are servants. It's like the apostle said in Acts chapter 6, that we need to select seven godly men to feed the Greek-speaking Jewish widows who converted to Christianity. They're not getting as much food as the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows that converted to Christianity are getting. So they appointed seven guys uh, who were spirit-filled to, to oversee that. Why? Because the apostles said, we must devote ourselves to the word of God in prayer. Okay? And, um, and so you're going to want pastors, but you're going to want deacons as well. Each church, each local body of believers, they need a lot of service, but they've got to have somebody or some group that dedicates themselves, dedicates their lives to the Word of God and prayer. And let me tell you something. You know what the world would say about that? The world would say, oh, those, those preachers are collecting unemployment. They're getting a paycheck and they're not doing anything. Because see, when... Uh, when I'm studying my Bible, and I'm getting deeper and deeper in my study of the Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit, and God tells us to be diligent, to be hardworking in our study of God's Word, when I'm doing that, guess what? Bill Gates is not impressed. Okay? But my message to Bill Gates is, what makes you think I'm living to impress you? I'm living to please, through the power of God and for his glory, to please the triune God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God has, even among the set-apart ones, the saints, he's also set-apart preachers who need to dedicate themselves to the study of the word of God and prayer. So you have bishops, overseers, but you also have deacons, servants in a church. You better be grateful not just for your, your overseers, but for your deacons as well. I'm, I'm telling you, uh, when the guys were, I mean, it wasn't just shoveling snow last Sunday. It was chipping away at two inches of solid, solid rock ice, okay? And um, so many things get done here that I don't even, I couldn't even imagine how to do. And uh, And phone calls get made and emails get made and, People get visited. That's the work of, of deacons. Okay? And, um, but Paul wishes them, in verse 2, wishes the Philippians uh, uh, grace and peace. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Grace and peace. He's saying grace to you, the the Greek word for grace is charis. We get our word charity from it. Okay? It means uh, 
Theologically, it means God's saving grace, where God gives us his favor even though we don't deserve it. Okay? Now, that was the common Greek greeting. They wouldn't walk up and say, hey, how you doing? Or, hey, hello to you, or whatever. Okay? Or, hi. They walk up and say, Charis, I wish favor upon you. Paul said, uh, I'm, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to take the common Greek greeting, Charis, and combine it with Irene, the Greek word for peace. So it's not just grace to you, but it's grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word uh, for peace, Irene in the Greek, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word shalom. And that was the common Jewish greeting. It still is to this day, shalom. I mean, they're wishing peace upon you, harmony in your life, freedom from stress and from worries. That thing spiritually would be properly aligned in your, your life so that you would be what God's called you to be. You wouldn't be, spiritually speaking, a bag of worms. And yes, they would care, shalom, peace not just with God, but peace with other men, peace with me. I don't want you to have to, you know, Paul says, if possible, so long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And that's uh, so some of the nicest things you could wish to somebody is grace and peace to you. Okay? And, uh, and so Paul said, I'm going to take the common Jewish greeting and combine it with the common Greek greeting, because I'm the apostle uh, to the Gentiles, but the gospel does come from the Jews. And Jesus was Jewish, and he is the Jewish Messiah. So grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ here, Paul says here, is Koryu uh, Yesu uh, Christu in the Greek. Koryu Yesu Christu in the Greek. And the word Korios means Lord. It doesn't always have to mean God, but sometimes the context demands it. And when you're talking about God the Father, and then you're talking about Jesus... And you call him Koryu, which is a variation of Korios. You're calling him the Lord in a religious sense. You're calling him Yahweh. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament dates back to 200 years before Jesus walked the earth. Uh, the most common way to translate the word Yahweh was Korios in the New Testament doesn't mean every time the word Koryos is in the New Testament, it means Yahweh, the I am who I am, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and is in covenant with the nation of Israel. Um, but most of the time when Koryos is used of Jesus, it means Yahweh. And so just by calling Jesus Koryu Yesu Christu, it's saying that Jesus, he, Paul is acknowledging that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one Yahweh is the one true Elohim. Elohim was the Hebrew word for God, one of the Hebrew words, and there were many false Elohim. Yahweh is the one true, eternal, infinite, all-powerful, all-good, all-holy God. He is Yahweh. 
And so Jesus is Yahweh, and he's Christu. From the word Christos, he's the Jewish Messiah. Okay? The one that God anointed to come and to rescue um, Israel, uh, uh, his people, the nation of Israel. When the Jews rejected the gospel, then it went to all mankind, the good news of salvation uh, through uh, Jesus. And so that's, that's the greeting right there. We'll, we'll get into the rest of this chapter next week where Paul will give thanks and pray for the Philippians. And then Paul, is, is he's, he's rejoicing that the gospel spread while he's in prison. Okay? Now keep in mind, this is 2,000 years ago. Not everybody gets a trophy. You've got to earn your trophies. So Paul had some students who he would tell, you um, are not grounded in the word enough to be a preacher. You need to keep quiet a little bit, okay? You, on the other hand, you're really learning what I'm teaching you. God's calling you to be a preacher, okay? Well, when Paul gets in prison, we're going to find out some of the guys that he said, you, you shouldn't be preaching, were preaching out of selfish ambition and out of envy. But so long as they preached the true gospel message, Paul was going to rejoice. Whether they were preaching the gospel message uh, from the right motives or from the wrong motives. Now keep in mind what he's not saying. He's not saying, I rejoice that people preach a false gospel. He says, I rejoice when people preach the true gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. God the Son become a man who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for us. I rejoice when people preach the true gospel even if they preach from the wrong motives. You know there's people in Kitsap County that don't like me. I don't know what I did, but they think I talk too much or talk too loud or whatever. And I've heard through the grapevine, yeah, this guy's bad-mouthing you. And i just like, okay, well, are you going to confront him? I said, no, I mean, I'm too busy. I'm too busy defending Jesus, defending the gospel. I don't have enough time to defend myself. But if the guy is preaching the true gospel, I rejoice that he's preaching the true gospel because it's not about Phil Fernandez, it's about Jesus. Paul understood it's not about Paul. It's about Jesus, okay? And so he rejoiced that the true gospel was preached. And then he had a life or death decision. They, the Romans might kill me or they might set me free. And Paul's like, I'd rather die and be with Jesus. But there's a lot of people who need me. And, um, and then he encourages the uh, Philippians to, to live for Jesus and to be willing to suffer for Jesus. And so we're going to get into this letter which encourages us to rejoice in the Lord always, not just when things go our way. And um, I think it's great that as we start the book of Philippians, a book on rejoicing, uh, in the midst of all the difficulties we have, some people are losing jobs, going through difficult times, we get a reminder to rejoice. No matter how bad things get, rejoice in the midst of our sufferings because we have a good God and He is a good King. And, um, and so we get to do that um, through celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper as a body of believers.